0: Welcome to Addiction in the Family, episode 45, Healing from Our Scars, with Christopher Morris. How has addiction affected your family?
1: It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, It has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother.
2: It
0: robbed my mother
2: of her daughter. Addiction has... Made our family quite challenging. It affected my family tremendously.
1: It's affected my relationship with my sister
0: where
2: I wouldn't, I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives
1: and I assume ancestors. It's sad, uh, generational. I think of him every day.
0: Welcome to Addiction in the Family a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Center, and I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and the new children's book, Mommy's Getting Sober. My wife, Kira, and I were in our addictions for over 10 years together in a shared recovery for over twice that long. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, I interview Christopher Morris, author of the book, We Are All Made of Scars, his memoir of growing up with a mother who struggled with alcohol use. In this interview, Chris talks about his experience with this, what it was like to revisit it through writing the book, what he's learned along the way, finding recovery for himself, and how it impacted raising his own kids. All this and more after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm
1: Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217.
0: I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. Without any further ado, let's get into our interview. All righty. Well, welcome to the show. So if you want to take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience and tell us, what are you doing on a show called Addiction in the Family?
2: Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Uh, I'm Christopher Morris. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, worked actually in the crediting industry for a number of years, and that's my day job. But I grew up a child of an alcoholic, and I just recently published a book called We Are All Made of Scars writing about growing up in that dysfunctional family.
0: You know, it seems funny to say I enjoyed reading your book. I really did. But of course, there's a lot of stuff in the book that's not very enjoyable. It was very difficult to go through. And if you don't mind, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, thank you. I did. So the book it's a memoir and I wrote it Basically, kind of like a novel. It is weird. Like you said, I've had many people be like, this is a breezy read. You know, I just kind of zipping through it, uh, which is the way I kind of wanted it because I wanted it to be an immersive work. But it it primarily goes through from ages 13 and 19 because my teenage years was really when my mother uh, was drinking the most heavily and she really just kind of descended. And I ended up uh, basically going right down along with her uh, as she was drinking more and more. I started using drugs and, you know, I didn't have a lot of boundaries. So, of course, being a teenager at South Side of Chicago in the 90s, um, no no cell phones, you know, I was just off the grid, having a fun time with my friends, getting into a lot of trouble, not going to school. So, yeah, the book primarily talks about me trying to, you know, live this, quote, normal existence in suburbia, as my mom has just been drinking, going to rehab, drinking, going to rehab, drinking, going to rehab, ultimately hitting a bottom where she loses everything and I realize okay I need to (laughs) make some choices of my own because I would hit my own bottom. That's kind of where the book ends.
0: Well it's interesting you talk about her going in and out of rehab because the book starts pretty much with you being checked in somewhere and thinking, okay, I'm being checked in somewhere, but really it should be her. You guys don't understand. Like my mom's the one with the problem. And this mirrors something that we see a lot in families, especially this idea And we call it the identified patient model, where there's somebody in the family where we can point to and say, okay, here's the person with the problem. And a lot of times it's the adolescent kid who gets tagged with that. And people may or may not take the time to say, why is this kid acting this way? What's going on? Instead, the family wants to make that person the identified patient. So the original dynamic, as I read it in the book, is you're the one being put in somewhere. And it's not till a ways later that your mom even considers being checked in somewhere can you talk about that a little bit
2: yeah that's an interesting kind of mirror as you said the book starts with me in the psych ward of a hospital and a freshman year in high school my mom's on the phone i'm trying to you know get her off the phone and being a precocious attention getting uh 13 year old i ended up cutting the top of my wrist really lightly with a steak knife and my mom in hindsight i was like i think she was trying to prove a point like hey I'm in charge here, you know, being an addict, because as people see in the book, time goes on, she becomes pretty manipulative in a lot of really dangerous ways. So the next day she took me and she's like, oh, my son is, you know, self-harming himself and all this. Um, So I'm in the psych ward for a few weeks. And like you said, it was interesting because the whole time I'm there, we're having group therapy. And I'm like, my mom is the one that, you know, should be in here. Really, I'm not suicidal. I'm not anything. It was actually helpful because it introduced me to Alateen. But it also, you know, I remember talking to the counselor and he said, you know, hey, the first stage of alcoholism is denial. And that's where your mom is right now. And I was like, oh, interesting. So for to be 13, and it did give me some language for what's happening. And then ultimately, yeah, not too much longer after that, she was in the same psych ward that I was in. So it was a weird poetic justice there.
0: (laughs) In the book, you actually talk about that a little bit about where it was difficult to see her in the same place that you had been, that it felt somehow wrong. And sometimes kids in that kind of environment can start to take some of this stuff on and feel like on the one hand, I wish there were some consequences for their behavior and not just mine. I wish that something would finally happen where they have to face their issues, but then feeling bad when that moment comes. And I wonder if you can talk about those feelings a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting because that is such a shock. And I think people listening probably relate, you know, the wishing and hoping like, oh, my mom's the one who needs help and needs help. And then, you know, again, I'm 13 at this time. So to kind of have those roles reversed, it's pretty shocking. And also at the time, I should mention, you know, I was living with my mom and stepdad and my stepdad, I was not really close with. So I think it was this mix of, okay, my mom's going to be in the hospital. I don't know, like, is she going to be in there for a week, a year, a month? You know, I have no concept of how rehab or you know things like that work at that age and no one unfortunately at the time really sat me down and said okay this is how it's going to work um so it is a pretty scary thing i know friends that have smaller children and their parents go into rehabilitation or get help and i can't imagine what that experience is like if you're six or eight but because even at 13 it was pretty shocking and scary
0: In my line of work, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of kids of various ages, teenagers, certainly, but as you said, down to kids who are six years old, sometimes younger, but usually six is kind of that traditional age worldwide where we, in our brain development, come to a stage where we can understand the world differently. And we can start to also form memories where we remember where we learned something. So around that age is when I notice when kids come into a family workshop situation or into a family therapy session, and while they may be hesitant to say things, they have a little more to say. That's an age where we can start to recognize something's off here, something's not right, and also recognize a little bit of our own feelings, what it is that we're feeling, how we wish the world was different than it is, and being able to speak to that in a new way. So essentially when you talk about that, you know, what's it like for a six-year-old or an eight-year-old when their parent goes to treatment, and this is actually a subject that's very near to my heart, because I've been working really to try and educate people about that, how to talk to kids about addiction and treatment and what's it like. And one of those things to recognize, like you said, is when a parent goes to treatment, people around them may say to the kid, oh, well, it won't be that long. But nobody says, here's exactly how long it is and here's what to expect. And by the way, to you as a little kid, this may feel like a very long time. We don't want to maybe pretend that it's not going to. And so you kind of touched on something, and I think I'm going to start asking people this. What were you told about addiction when you were a kid, especially as a younger child?
2: Oh, such a good question. What was I told uh, about addiction? I mean, it's interesting you said it because you slowly found out, you know, as I get older, there was addiction on both sides of my family tree. And... I think what I was often told, and this was what I was told about my mom, because my mom would say this, was, oh, they're they're just sick. You know, they can't help themselves. Or my grandpa would be like, oh, he's drinking just to make himself feel better. So I think, and that's a cultural thing, too, is like, oh, you're having a rough day? You have a drink. So my grandpa, who had this kind of madman, like, sales job and things like that, it was just like, oh, that's just what he does. You know, that's part of his job. But I was definitely... Often told, like, oh, no, this is a person sick. So I always kind of correlated sickness and addiction at a young age. Because my mom even, I didn't know it at the time when I was really young, she would send me to the grocery store just like, Chris, I'm not feeling well. Can you run, you know, get some milk and stuff like that? I was like, okay. So I'd run, you know, seven, eight years old, go to the grocery store, which is a little weird uh, for sure. But later on, I'm like, oh, no. My mom was, quote, sick uh, and really, you know, probably drinking at the time yeah that's pretty much sickness is what i was always told
0: and i hear that come up a lot and interesting because we talk about addiction it is a disease from a medical or scientific perspective which i very much agree with and yet usually when people say it they don't mean it like oh well you know there's something wrong with their mind and it needs to be addressed and they should see a doctor it's just more like oh well they're under the weather they're feeling tired they're feeling sick i was told the same thing as a child myself growing up in a Household where my dad had the drinking problem. And I remember as a kid, you know, that thought could come up kind of like, oh, if that's what it's like when you get sick, like, what's it going to mean for me if I get sick? Yeah. My mom says, oh, you're feeling sick. It's like, uh oh, okay, am I next? And so I guess the second part of that question is what do you wish you had been told about addiction as a child?
2: What's interesting hearing you talk, it made me think the one thing that I was glad to be exposed to allotene, I learned pretty quickly that there was nothing I could do. So I think there was a short period, you know, a year or so where I was like, hey, mom, just stop drinking because I didn't have the conceptual understanding that it is a disease. Like my mom just couldn't stop drinking. So I learned pretty quickly, okay, I couldn't stop her drinking. So one of the things I really wish I knew at a young age, and especially as a teenager, Something I learned at Al-Anon was, you know, that notion of you can't control it, you can't cure it, and you didn't cause it. Like those three things together, like when I meet people in the program and I can see them in meetings and they hear that, you could see their minds just like, wow. It just hits so many different layers of understanding. So that's something I really wish I knew. That would have saved me so much worry and anxiety as a teenager, just to know those three things.
0: Yeah, the classic three seasons of al and you're right. They're very, very powerful, and I'm always happy to pass those along. And it's funny, I'll say them in a family workshop, and someone will go like, oh, my God, you are so wise. And I'm like, I, saw, I just want to let you know I didn't make that up, and here's where you can go to hear more of this wisdom. Another question I'd want to ask, though, for you as a parent, how have you talked to your kids about addiction and it running in the family and that sort of thing?
2: Great question, because this comes up a lot with my kids, obviously. I have a teenager. Well, one's 20 you know, and one's a teenager. And I was careful, probably when they are preteens, you know, as they start getting their phones and start going out with their friends more, I remember sitting both of them down and being like, hey, you know, as you get a little older and even, you know, whatever age just happens, you can experiment with some weed or drinking, whatever it is, and just know, you know, there's some kids and some people that could just drink a little bit and smoke and go on with their day. It's fine. Unfortunately, there's, you know, our family, both sides of the family, you really have to be careful because it's it could be harder for you to just be like, okay, well, that was fun. I'm not never going to do that again. You really need to keep an eye on that. Whether you're 14, whether you're 40, uh, it's just something you need to keep an eye on. And they kind of knew that already because as they were little, my mom was still alive and still drinking pretty heavily. And I remember... They would ask sometimes, like, how come we never see Nana? And I was like, well, <laughs> she's not feeling very well. And then she got a little, little older, uh, where I knew they could understand the idea of alcoholism. Like, no, she's, you know, she's always had a drinking problem, uh, a substance abuse disorder. And, you know, that's just, uh, it's hard for her to move through the world and things like that. So I was pretty okay talking to them just about the disease and things like that. But also giving them the warning, like, hey, this you need to be careful.
0: I'm glad you were able to do that. I mean, this is how we shift family patterns, right? Intergenerationally, we know your mom did not invent addiction from the ground up. Her parents did not invent any of the addiction, mental health things that run in families. Like, There's no way to ever go back and say, ah, right there. That's where it started. These things have just been passed down for so long. And not just the addiction and the genetics and stuff like that, but the family culture around it. You know, How do we talk about it? Do we talk about it at all? All these things, do we talk about emotions? These are things that get passed down hand to hand through each generation, even if the addiction skips a generation or several. And so being able to make those shifts in your family and the way that you're talking about the way you talk to your kids versus the way you were talked to about it versus the way I would hazard a guess your mom or her parents were talked about it really has the potential to make a lot of difference in the future. And so I commend you for that.
2: Thank you. And definitely the other thing I'll say is, as they got a little older, you know, I've been going to Al-Anon for a dozen years now. And, you know, they got to the point, I was like, where's dad going every Thursday night, you know, kind of thing. So I I was pretty good about, you know, dad goes to therapy, dad goes to Al-Anon, you know, it's just helping me because I grew up in this sort of situation. So I've tried to also kind of model like, hey, you know, you do, you know, you got to work on yourself as an adult. And if there's something similar, yeah, they, they could see me go to therapy. modeling is huge being able to say on some level not
0: just with words but with your actions like it's okay to ask for help it's okay to talk about it when we struggle it's okay to not be okay and ask for help and let people know what's going on that's a really big deal and i like to say that my daughter when she was really young if she thought where i was going is that she probably thought i was going to parenting classes Because it just kept getting better and better in how I related to her. And she would say that sometime into my recovery, about five years in. One of my favorite all-time recovery stories is that I mentioned around the breakfast table, like, hey, you know what? I've been in recovery for five years now. And my wife was like, hey, good for you. And my daughter just big hug and said, you're so much of a better parent than you used to be. And I remember that really struck me because she was only like seven years old at the time to say like, okay, she's been paying attention like she notices the difference probably more than i noticed the difference so being able to model that i think is is such a big deal and i'd say that to anybody out there listening that i've said it to many many family members and many many clients who struggle with addiction themselves the most powerful thing you can do to help everybody around you is to work on your own recovery
2: absolutely and that's one of the things i think i learned in alan because i've seen so many people over the years including myself you know it's like okay how can i get help for the alcoholic? And I learned that very quickly. And I was like, oh, wait, this is for me, <laughs> right? Uh, not to change the other person. And it's interesting because that's one of the things I learned writing the book. I think when I started writing it, I was like, okay, this is going to be this compendium of all the bad stuff that my mom did. I'm going to show people how bad alcoholism is. And there's certainly that's in there. But as I took you know the time to write it over a span of a few years, I was like, oh, wait, I did some really not cool stuff myself, and that was kind of also another eye-opening moment, just to realize, wow, okay, you know, I have to make amends, and I have to really keep working on myself, uh, because I was a big part in this, too. Obviously, it's my life, (laughs) so that's something I still really try to keep a check on, was like, okay, there's the alcoholism, there's the addiction, but I'm the main character of my own life here, not as the supporting character in someone else's.
0: But I was really impressed with that. And the way you wrote the book, you're right. It it could have been just like, here's the horror show of my mom's addiction. And while there is plenty in there to look and say, like, wow, yeah, how difficult that was. You spend, I'd say, really a lot more time talking about, well, here's what I did and not just everything wrong, but here's what it felt like, here's where I went off the rails. And then towards the very end, you know, okay, dear reader, here's how I actually pulled it back together. So it it doesn't end on just like, okay, and crash burn and there's the book. So you you do spend a little bit of time talking about where things got better from there. And that's a really important part of the story. Because they say we're gonna clean up our side of the street, but also looking at how you learned and grew from it. And what would you say you most took away, not just from the experience, but from writing about the experience?
2: Ooh, I learned so much, just so much gratitude and also compassion. You know, someone has done EMDR and therapy like having so much compassion for my younger self you know to see myself as I'm writing I'm like wow I was doing my best but I also didn't know what I didn't know and I was just really just moving day to day never thinking long term and it was also interesting because and I encourage listeners to write their story even you know outline it because as I was writing my grandma was still alive at the time and I would sit with her and be like hey you know remember that time when I was little, this happened, you know, and my uncle, I'm like, remember this time? And they filled in all these gaps in my story that I never would have known. And some of them were just chilling things. Like, for example, when I was a kid, my parents were divorced. I was living with my mom and we moved back in with my grandma. And I was wondering, like, why did we move back in with my grandma? And my grandma said, oh, well, didn't you know that she was drinking? And she said that she was going to kill herself and take you guys with her because she was just at the end of her rope. And I said, you need to live with me now. And I was like, wow, I would have known that <laughs> if you hadn't told me. the part of me was like, maybe I didn't need to know that, honestly. But now I do. Uh, that's fine. But I really, I mean, writing the book, too, um, it was super cathartic. And like we are talking about kids, the first people I gave the book to when I was done, I was like, here, I gave it to my daughters. I was like, you know, just no matter if no one else reads this in the world, you are the two most important people. Like you were saying, you know, the generational kind of trauma It's just like, I want you to know, this is a part of our family history. And also, more importantly, this is your dad. This is kind of how I grew up. It's led to some great conversations with my kids, with my brother, with pretty much any remaining family member, Um, just because so many of them like, wow, I had no idea. Or I knew some of it, but I didn't know your story. So even though it was super vulnerable to put so much out there, the conversations I've had uh, with pretty much everyone close to me is probably brought me closer to them than I probably ever would
0: have. That's a beautiful answer. First of all, I love when you talk about self-compassion and self-forgiveness and just recognizing I was doing the best I could, even if it wasn't pretty. I was doing the best that I could. And being able to see yourself in a compassionate light. And then, like you said, sparking those conversations. I'd encourage anyone listening to this to think about, like what are the conversations that you never have that maybe you should have? Like I said even just writing down questions even if you're not going to make a book out of it even if you're never going to do anything else with it just to be able to ask each other those questions and be able to explore some of those topics like you said they're not always pretty answers that we want to hear but at the same time i like to think that the truth at the end of the day is going to serve us better so rather than you going to your grave thinking well why did we move in with my grandmother Okay, there it was. Yeah, that's a scary truth to hear. And yet at the same time, it helps things make sense. And I think the scariest things, especially for kids, are the things that we can't add up that never quite make sense. And so being able to help them through and see what the honest truth is, that at least, uh, I hate to use the word closure because I'm not a big fan of that idea, but I'm a big fan of the idea of being able to just settle something in our heart and say like, okay, at least I know what
2: really happened. Absolutely. The th- the thing you just made me think of that I also really took away from those again those conversations I never would have had. I remember my uncle was telling me during this time as I'm writing the book, I was just saying, hey, "Tell me about your dad." This is my mom's brother, my mom, the alcoholic, and so he was telling me about you know their dad and how much he drank and you know how he would halluc- drink to the point of hallucination, and go in the garage and be talking to you know golf clubs and getting to the point where he was chasing them around with a shotgun because he would just get so out of his mind, you know, drinking. So I would hear this. Of course, I knew my grandpa was an alcoholic, but not to this extent. So that was really interesting because I came out of writing the book having more compassion for my mom. I mean, I'd already forgiven my mom and the alcoholism and the disease, but to really hear more like, oh, wow, you know, like me as a child, she grew up in this environment where she had an alcoholic father. That was something that I never would have had just it was pretty almost weirdly healing to hear these stories about when my mom went through and be like oh wow of course you know as you know I mean so many adult children of alcoholics grow up to be alcoholics themselves and even though I intellectually knew that to hear my mom's story and be like oh well gosh of course you know she she had no model for a lot of this stuff so that's why she drank so that gave me a little bit more again some contextual background for my mom and it was amazing.
0: All right, and that seems like a good place to take a quick break and hear a word from one of our sponsors.
1: You have a loved one who's just gotten sober. They're trying to convince you that this time is different, that they've really changed, but their words fall on deaf ears. So much trust has been lost over the course of their addiction. Soberlink can help. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is designed to help loved ones get sober while rebuilding trust with friends and family. Small enough to fit in their purse or pocket, and discreet enough to use in public, SoberLink devices combine facial recognition, tamper detection, and real-time results, so you know instantly that a loved one is sober and working toward their recovery goals. Visit www.soberlink.com family to sign up and receive $50 off a device.
0: Welcome back. Let's hear more of that interview with Christopher Morris. Sometimes it's a weirdly wrapped gift of the experiences that we have. For instance, we could say coming out of all of this, that your mom went through probably as difficult a circumstance growing up and she didn't have the benefit of getting checked into a hospital at 13 and running into a counselor who said, hey, by the way, there is a way out and here's what it looks like. And even though we know that, especially working with adolescents, sometimes we're just planting a seed, right? We might just be saying something that that isn't going to come to fruition for 10 years. At the same time, most people wouldn't look back and say like, wow, what a blessing you went to the psych hospital. And yet from what you're saying, your life might not be the same if you hadn't had that experience.
2: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I'm grateful for all of those experiences. I'm sure um, you get this too. Many times people ask me like... If you can go back would you take your mom's alcoholism away and i'm like that's the hardest question to answer because i think i'm the person i am and as resilient as i am and have done all that i have because of the hardships i've had to endure all the the darkness as i like to call it you know has made me appreciate the light so much more
0: a subject that doesn't get discussed maybe enough is the idea of post-traumatic growth In fact, I can say to my clients, I'll write it on the board if I'm teaching about post-traumatic growth. I'll say, okay, I write post-traumatic, what comes next? And they'll go, stress disorder, PTSD. And I'm like, and that's a very real thing. And we need to look at that and how to heal from it. However, the most natural thing for our brain is to actually grow from trauma. And that doesn't mean, hey, we wish people went through it, but just to recognize like we are built to heal and grow. And so when you say even the title of your book, Yeah, we're all made of scars. Yeah, nobody gets through childhood unscathed and probably shouldn't because if we did, then we're unprepared for anything that might happen in the world. And how are we gonna know how strong and resilient we are? So again, we don't wish these experiences on anyone, but to recognize all the ways that we have grown through that trauma and as a result of that trauma and inspired by that trauma, there can be a lot of gratitude for that. Speaking of gratitude, You talk about this a little bit in your relationship with your mom as it evolves. Like you said, most of the book takes place when you're 13 to 19, and your relationship with your mom evolves over that time as anyone's would. But there's more to the story that is kind of put as the epilogue to the book about how that relationship evolved towards the end of her life. And do you mind talking about that some?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because when things got really bad, I ended up joining the Army and then came back from the Army, a new person, three years later, went to college and everything else. And, you know, I came back, I was like 22 years old, and during my 20s, my mom was still drinking heavily and living a couple hours away in Chicago, and it just kind of kept her at arm's length because I, I was still... Resentful, And my whole goal was, okay, I want to just get the middle class existence. I want a happy family. I want kids. I want the dog and the house. That's, you know, I want normalcy. That's all I'm going for. And it wasn't until I went to uh, marriage counseling, because of course, I finally got what I wanted. And my life started spinning out because of course, I've never had normal in my life. And I was starting to be controlling, and you know, all the things that adult children of alcoholics uh, do, trying to manage things that didn't be managed and super negative, things like that. So we end up in marriage counseling, rightly so, definitely needed uh, marriage counseling. And the marriage counselor is like, have you heard of Eleanor, on adult children of alcoholics? And I said, I have never heard of that. And of course, started going to meetings and realized, wow, this is um, where I need to be and you know they have the laundry list of adult terminal alcoholics, and I was fit. It was like exactly how it described me. So uh, all that—that's background to say. You know, finally going to the meetings and stuff finally gave me some more understanding of like, oh wow, there's effects, long-term effects of growing up in this environment, which. Honestly, I always thought, like, I survived. Isn't that enough? I'm successful. I've got everything I wanted. But of course, you know, my wiring was still stuck when I was a teenager. So going to the meeting, going to therapy, really helped me reconcile with my mom. Because, again, hearing people talk about their parents and realizing, wow, so many adulterative alcoholics grow up to be alcoholics, it started to change the perception of my mom in my mind. I was just like, oh wow. Okay. she did the same thing I did, except when she was in her 30s, she started to drink heavily. Whereas I started to be controlling, I started to do you know this para-alcoholism stuff. So I reconciled with my mom a little bit. I started to talk to her more. We had some great conversations as I was, you know, working the steps and out and on. And it was pretty bittersweet because I swear months after we had like a I get emotional thinking about it, but just talking on the phone and Basically saying, like, Mom, I forgive you. I know it wasn't your fault and disease. You know, this beautiful moment that you always wish you have just with my mom. And then, like, two months later, she passed away, just went to sleep, never woke up. So I'm grateful that I found the program and therapy when I did because it was just I'm glad that, like, my mom and I left on good terms. Like, she knew how I felt, and she left knowing I loved her, and we kind of made up, so to speak, and we had that moment together.
0: I'm so glad you had that, and really, a lot of people never get that. So, the idea that you did have the reconciliation, that you were able to find some peace with it, and I think you can reference this in your book. Like the movie version might go that, like, okay, now you guys have another 20 years. We're not going to actually slog through the day-to-day work and the therapy and all that. It would be movie therapy with like you know one good session, and then it'll be a montage of great life after that. We know life doesn't always go in that direction, but you did get to make peace sounds like through self-forgiveness and through being able to forgive her as well. And that's
2: such a big and important part of your story. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the thing I forgot, which, and another reason I wrote the book is, you know, so many memoirs and things like that around addiction are always from the addict's perspective or the person going through it. And the thing about my story that it's so sad, but it's, it's like, I made it out of it, but. You know, my mom, at the end, there is no happy ending where she, you know, went to the, the perfect meeting and heard the perfect speaker and, you know, stopped drinking forever. She just slowly drank until she died. And that's the reality. And sadly, there are so many people that that's what happens. And even now, I'll go to open AA meetings and hear people share the story. And I'm like, man, it's like, there's my mom's story. And then, boom, they had that moment where they went to the right meeting or they're talking they hit their bottom, whatever. And... My mom never had that, so I, I really wanted to share. As sad as it is, that story too. You know, here's the Al Anon experience: strength and hope, because oftentimes there is no happy ending for the alcoholic.
0: It's true, and that's true. Of really, any chronic disease. And we recognize that, yes, a certain number of people who have a heart condition are going to die from that heart condition, or they have diabetes, they're going to die from the diabetes. And we like to say, hey, everybody makes it out alive. But realistically, it's only a small percentage of people that ever get sober at all, let alone stay sober you know, through the end of their lives. Statistically, that's a smaller number of people. But the good news is it only takes one person in the family to make a change. And I think your story really illustrates this. Like The whole family doesn't have to get recovery. Do I hope they would? Of course. Am I going to encourage it, especially doing the work that I do? Absolutely. But I recognize that sometimes if a family comes in to do family work, maybe the person with the addiction is going to get it and maybe they're not. Maybe it's going to be a son or a daughter or a sibling or a parent who starts to grab onto recovery. But it only takes that one person to shift the family dynamic because I can only imagine how this same story would play out if you had never gotten into recovery. And how do you imagine that would have gone?
2: Ooh. Um, yeah. I don't think about that a lot because my life was definitely like three chapters was like my growing up with my mom being an adult before recovery. And then I think about the last 12 years in recovery and it's profoundly changed every single part of my life. Uh, I don't think I would be as happy Uh, for sure. And that's one of the things that I've learned in recovery is like, oh, wow, I could really nurture my inner child, you know? Like, it's okay. I could be the, quote, 15-year-old Chris again and, like, play arcade games and read comic books and stuff, and it's okay. It's fine. No one's going to judge me. I really nurture that inner child stuff. I'm very creative, and I paint, and I play music, and obviously I write, and, you know, I could be pretty silly with my kids and with my friends. Um, And that's something which I would never giveaway, you know, being able to experience joy, right? As I think about pre-recovery, I was in my head a lot of the time, I was very negative. I'd be the person like, oh, that's great, but the glass half empty kind of person. And I feel like now, and really focusing on the gratitude, which has been a part of my recovery, you know, I do a gratitude journal every day and pray every night. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I feel like over time has slowly rewired my, my thinking in a positive way. I would not give that up because I, yeah, I couldn't imagine the type of person I would be without that. Beautiful.
0: Let's take another moment and hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll wrap up our interview with Christopher Morris, author of We Are All Made of Scars. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support in our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I am working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, information on my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and my newest book, Mommy's Getting Sober, a children's book that also includes a guide for caregivers on how to talk to kids about addiction. All three are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's finish up our interview. It's hard to imagine that you would have been able to have those beautiful moments towards the ends with your mom
2: if you hadn't been in recovery yourself. Absolutely. yeah. I, I kind of wince when I think about it, because oftentimes I'd be in my 20s my mom would call me and I'd be like, she'd be like, why do you want to talk to me? I was like, mom, I'm still mad about everything you did. And I would just sometimes hang up on her. Now, I again, I, it kind of terrifies me, but it wasn't until recovery, I was like, oh, it just gave me so much compassion and, like I said, forgiveness. For my mom in a way that, yeah, I don't know if I ever would have that. And that makes me really sad, honestly. Yeah. Well,
0: luckily you did. And I'm going to put that out there again for anybody listening that if you're a family member of somebody who struggles with addiction or any major mental health issue to recognize that you don't have to wait for your loved one to get better. And even if they don't get better, you working on your recovery can improve that relationship, your relationship with yourself and your relationship with them. Even if they never get to that point, even if their disease does take them, things can still be better if you're willing to work on your recovery. And you're one of a number of people that I've talked to over the years. Some of my favorite people in recovery have been people who say like, oh, I came into the program because I have a loved one who struggles. Or a loved one who got sober. Maybe they were sober 30 years. I'm still going to the program. They've passed away of natural causes a couple years ago. And my first thought would be like, well, why do you keep coming back? Well, the fact is my life keeps getting better. And I know as a parent, and I'm going to ask you as a father if you feel the same way, but if I knew that I was going to go down in flames, but my daughter would be okay, and she'd be okay long after I was gone, and that's what it would take, I would go for that deal. I would rather not go down in flames, of course. But just to know your kids are going to be okay is such a blessing. And I wonder if maybe your mom was able to pick some of that up from you towards the end to recognize that maybe you were going to be okay.
2: I hope so. Yeah, it's definitely like, I would do the same for my kids for sure. And uh, I remember my mom even asking me like, you know, why the change. And I was telling her about Al-Anon, Adulterian of Alcoholics. And yeah, it led to so many good conversations. It also made me think, you know, my grandma who lived to be 91, as I'm writing a book and stuff, similarly, she saw a change in me. And I said, well, have you ever heard of Al-Anon? And she's like, well, and she literally pulled out of her side chair. She had one of the daily readers from Al-Anon and it was like this weathered, tattered copy. And she's like, oh yeah. She's like, I read this book every day. And I'm like, Nana, I can't believe it. And she started telling me about Al-Anon. She's like, well, yeah, of course. My mom's dad, her ex-husband, was an alcoholic, and I was just like, wow. So to to have that kind of full circle moment with her was pretty beautiful, too. I was just like, of course, because she was the most happy, cheery person. And I think Alan on recovery gave her a little bit of that happiness and joy again.
0: I love that story. That is just beautiful. So I guess I'd ask, as we're maybe moving towards uh, the runway a little bit here, What is something that you'd really want family members to take away from hearing you here and from reading your book?
2: Well, the biggest thing for sure is the thing that I wish I knew when I was a teenager going through this. And, you know, whether you're a teenager, you know, again, 30, 40, 50 years old, is you're not alone. And I get choked up thinking about it because it's just like you felt so isolating to be in this, quote, normal suburban environment going through this kind of chaos and going to high school and everyone else is just complaining about, you know, my dad didn't give me gas money for, you know, this and that. I felt so alone. And, you know, it took me 20 years to my first Alan on meeting to sit in a room with people basically telling my story. Gosh, this is just the most profound experience to be like, wow, there's all these other people that are basically telling different versions of my story. Right. So just know you're not alone. And, you know, Whether it's therapy, Al-Anon, adult and alcoholics, you know, there's so many groups and people out there that are just ready to help. I think about the first few meetings and all the people that would come to me and say, hey, here's my phone number. Give me a call. You know, if you're having a rough day, give me a call. I was like, I don't even know you. What? And then sure enough, you know, pretty soon you start calling people and they're calling you. And the support system that I've gained, I wish I had that when I was in the thick of this. I mean, I'm glad I have it now. Again, I have no active addiction in my life. But I have this long list of people that I can call or that I can go to a meeting. So that's a long way of saying, I think, just knowing that you're not alone and there's, you know, so many other people that have your version of your story and want to help you or just lend their own experience, strength, and hope when you need it.
0: That's so beautiful. So, uh, Chris, where can people find you and find your book and contact you if they wanted to?
2: Well, the book is uh, We Are All Made of Scars, and you can go to weareallmadeofscars.com it's on Amazon. If people want to find me on social media, I'm just at Morris Chris. And yeah, I'd love to hear from folks. Uh, That's the coolest thing since the book has come out uh, because I work in the financial industry and there's not a lot of people writing about these vulnerable stories about, you know, growing up with addiction. So it's been great the last few months to have just so many people, people I know and don't know, basically sharing again, like we were talking about sharing their story and connecting with them in a way that, you know, I never would have a chance to before.
0: Great stuff. Well, Chris, it has been fantastic having you on the show and really enjoyed reading your book. Again, not in the sense of like, gee, neat that that happened to you, but so well written and being able to, like you said, just draw people into the story. So highly recommended. We're all made of scars and hopefully we'll have a chance to have you back on the show sometime.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer on the show or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter.
1: Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.